welcome to the Outside In Radio Show with me, Amber. And me, Freya. Thanks for tuning in. Today's headline is the announcement of the 2021 budget. And for our key political concept, Freya is looking at minority parties. And for our main segment today, we're talking, we're talking to our World Book Day author, Lucy Jago. But first things first, our good news story. Um, today's good news story is about reading during lockdown. The World Book Day website found that reading during lockdown has helped 40% of the young people that they surveyed to feel more relaxed. Um, they've also found that parents read more with their children during the lockdown and encourage, were encouraging them to read more, which they reported has helped with their child's well-being. Uh, obviously, many children have struggled during lockdown with being provided with books, um, but many charities are working to help as many children as they can. For example, the Children's Book Project has gifted over 110,000 books in the last year. Um, and our etymology of the week, World Book Day themed, is the word book. So this is from the Old English book, which originally meant a document or charter. And it's from the Proto-Germanic word boko, which I'm not sure how to pronounce. Um, but that's also from the Proto-Germanic word bokis, which meant beach. The bark of the beech tree was often used to carve runes into. And now on to Politics Breakdown. Hi, and today in Politics Breakdown, we're going to talk about the announcement of the budget, which happened today, today being Wednesday when we recorded. Um, so every year the budget is announced and it's the plan for how the government is going to spend its money over the next year. Um, the Chancellor announces this, so that's the minister who's in charge of managing the government's finances. And right now that's Rishi Sunak. You might have seen his face on the news when talking about things like the Eat Out to Help Out scheme or the furlough scheme. Um, this year, the budget's really important for lockdown and announcing how the government is going to support people when the economy isn't... Um, there's not a lot going on in the economy. So when restaurants are closed and people can't work, it's really important that the government um, tells people how they're going to give them financial support. The key things that have happened in the budget that was announced today, um, a few things. Um, the furlough scheme has been extended. This is the scheme that means the government pays 80% of some people's wages if they can't work at the moment and there was a lot of pressure to extend that and it has until September. There's also been um, the £20 increase in universal credit, so benefits that happened during lockdown is also staying until September, which opposition parties did call for. And from April, the minimum wage is going to increase to £8.91 an hour, which is interesting. There were also some facts about the economy that came up. Um, so Britain's economy shrank by 10% in 2020, which is a lot. It's the largest out of all um, major economies. So compared with America and big European countries, Britain's economy has suffered a lot more due to coronavirus, but it's expected to return back to normal by 2022. Um, one other thing that has caused controversy about the budget this year is corporation tax. So some big companies have made a lot of money during coronavirus, for example, 
Amazon with people doing a lot more online shopping. And the in the budget, Sunak announced that corporation tax is going to go up to 25% in 2023. This is quite a big increase and Labour was opposing it and um, economists have been debating what to do about corporation tax and which method will work for helping economic recovery from COVID. Labour responded to the budget after it was announced and criticised the government for not talking about how they're going to protect the NHS and for not talking about the inequalities that COVID might have caused in society. And they said that the Conservatives had no plan for the future in terms of the economy. And now Freya is going to talk about minority parties. Yeah, and as Ruby said, today's key concept to help provide context for our upcoming interview with UKIP mayoral candidate Dr Peter Gammons is minority parties. In the UK, in our UK political system, we have two main dominating parties, Conservative and Labour. These parties currently make up the government and opposition, with Boris, who is the head of the Tory government, and Sophia Starmer, who is the head of the Labour opposition. Now, the nature of our political system with the first past the post means we have a winner-takes-all electoral system which this means it's more likely to result in a two-party system, leaving minority parties with less opportunity to come to power. Although this can be possible, as we have seen with the 2010 coalition between the Conservatives and the third largest party, the Lib Dems. Some examples of minority parties are the SNP, so they represent Scottish issues with the ultimate aims for Scottish independence, the Green Party, who primarily focus on environmental issues and lean more left, and UKIP, whose original purpose has been achieved by the UK leaving the European Union. So even if the minority powers do not get into power, they still hold seats in Westminster, and this makes sure that these parties can still build influence and apply pressure to Parliament policy. So make sure you keep an eye out on the news and don't underestimate their influence. Okay, so now we're moving on to our main segment, um, and today we're talking to Lucy Jago, who is an author. Um, her recent book, A Net for Small Fishes, has just been released, um, so get your hands on that if you can. Um, yeah, so hi Lucy, um, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, we're very excited to have you, to be talking to you today. Um, so our first question is, how did you get into writing? Oh, well, I wanted to write since I was about six. I always loved reading. When I was little, I used to like Enid Blyton. I'm not sure I had particularly good taste, but uh, I just read anything I could find. Um, but then after university, I actually wanted to travel and have some fun. So I went into television instead, making documentaries. And then one of those documentaries was in the in the Arctic Circle, right at the top of Norway. And I came across the story of the man who first discovered what causes the Northern Lights, who is a Norwegian called Professor Christian Birkeland. And I couldn't believe that no one had written about him. He had such an amazing life. And so I basically left TV to write his story and I haven't looked back. So you've written an amazing biography about Christian Birkland, who's known for solving the mystery of the Northern Lights. What drew you to his story? 
I think I was drawn to him because I felt he'd been treated very badly by British scientists. So during his lifetime, all the British scientists, and of course this was an era of tremendous colonialism, the thought that the Norwegians couldn't possibly know anything useful and uh, denied that anything he said was right. And it was only after his death that rockets went up into space and proved his theories to be correct. And he had a very difficult and tragic life. And I was just drawn to him. And I thought lots of people would be interested in his actual life as well as his science. And of course, most of us are quite fascinated by the Aurora Borealis. Hmm. Um, and then on the other side of your writing, you've written two historical fiction novels. Um, so Montacute House is set in 1596 and your latest, A Net for Small Fishes, begins in 1609. So why historical fiction? I think historical fiction has always fascinated me. So some of my favourite writers write historical fiction. Uh, people like Andrew Miller, Rose Tremaine, Hilary Mantel, um, tremendous writers who write contemporary as well as historical. Um, and I find it fascinating to read a book and come away from it and feel I've really learned something. I think that makes you feel very nourished, as long as it's not stuffed down your throat in an unappealing way. You can really feel you've gone back in time or you've understood a period you didn't know anything about. And often that makes you think about your own time or your own life in a different way. So it can really add depth and understanding to your knowledge of the world and the world's history. So history's always fascinated me. But I, although all my books at the, so far anyway have involved a lot of research, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a historical fiction writer because I would write anything really that I found interesting enough. It just so happens that the last two have been, and so is the next one in fact. But I wouldn't ever say I wouldn't write contemporary novels because I, I think I would. And so um, you were mentioning a lot about research and obviously both of your um, genres, non-fiction, historical fiction, require this. So what are your top tips for researching books and staying motivated in that process? Top tips would be try not to lose your research. So you need quite a good system of organising yourself. I'm often not very good at that. I think you people will be much better because you're much better technically than I am. I'm useless on computers and things like that. So I think uh, knowledge of computer systems is a good idea, how to file and, and then retrieve. I tend to write all my notes longhand in, in books. And um, then I do have a little index at the front of each book with a note of which book that's from and what page in case I ever need to go back and refer to it. So that's pretty archaic way of doing it. But I do find that when you handwrite things, what you have done really sinks into your brain. There is something about that connection between your hand and your brain that helps you remember things. So it's the same for when I come up with my ideas. I tend to always um, structure books or think about what my books are about in, in handwriting. I do it on paper. And it's only when I'm writing them that I go onto the computer. So research, uh, to be honest, I've never needed to motivate myself for research because I'm quite greedy to go find out stuff. So I never really flag. Um, I just find it fascinating. But I think if you are flagging, I think that might be because you're not quite sure what it is you're trying to get at. 
I think once you have a good goal, a very clear aim and a clear goal of what you're, why you're researching, then you wouldn't find it hard to, to keep going because you're very focused and you're not feeling lost and sort of floundering around in books, wondering what on earth you're doing. Um, so how long do you roughly spend researching before you begin writing your book or do you do it all at the same time? What sort of? Oh, well, about three years for this one that should come out. <laughs> I, I probably did do, it's taken me about eight years to write this book, but very on and off because I did other writing that I was being paid for. And I also used to teach, I'm, I'm a fellow of the Royal Literary Fund. So I go into universities and help people with their academic writing. So I've, this this novel I had to write uh, very part time. So yes, I probably spent at least three years just reading, reading, reading. And because I chose to write about women four hundred years ago, there's very little, very direct evidence about them. So you have to read incredibly widely to find what their lives would have been like. So a lot of research was required, and I like doing it. I like being thorough. But um, then I started writing because if you're not careful, you can use research as a way of procrastinating. Oh, I will start writing, but I think I better find out what color people's uh, shoes were in those days or whatever. And it's because research is so much more pleasant than sitting down and actually doing the hard work of writing. But at some point, you just have to say, right, I'm going to start writing. And then if in chapter two, you need to know exactly where the King's Silk House was, then you go and find out and you put it in and off you go again. So really it's a bit of both. So a lot of research at the beginning and then you just sprinkle it in a more direct way as you're going through the writing. Um, and then names, that's quite like when I do some writing, I spend a lot of time <laughs> researching names. Is that something that comes easily? How do you select the names of your characters? Well, in this book, Annette for Small Fishes, it was very easy because they're all based on real people. Though I only had to make up one or two. There's only one fully made up character, Mrs. Bowdlery. So that's the name I had to make up, so much easier. In my previous book, I did have to make up names. And of course, they come to you from research, I find. So you'll find a document with a name in it and you just think, oh, that's a wonderful name. And you use that or you mix and match it with a different surname or whatever. Probably much harder for people writing contemporary fiction because names can mean so much to you. If you've had a friend with a name, and then whenever you read that name, you're going to sort of like the person or someone you really didn't like, and then you read that name, you're going to have to get over those feelings. So I think, uh, yeah, that's probably harder for, for people writing contemporary novels. And after you've chosen your name, how do you go about shaping those characters? Like, how do you get them, like, perfectly in your head? It's surprisingly difficult, I find, to really get your main characters to feel very real. It took me a long time. So my subsidiary characters I found much easier. And I think partly because you aren't trying to make them so rounded and so real. So you can give them a sort of, not a stereotype, but you can give them a very strong character in one particular direction. Whereas your main characters, you need them to be very rounded and, and very real to you. So I probably did every technique in the book at different phases writing this book. So at one point I imagined I was interviewing them and that was surprisingly productive. I literally sat them down in a chair opposite me and asked them questions and after a while they sort of answered me in their own way and that was very, very helpful. 
The other thing I always do is find any visual material I can. So in this case, there was a painting of my one of my main characters, and there are other visual representations of people of the time. So that's really helpful because it reminds you that just because someone lived 400 years ago doesn't mean that some people were very tall, some were very small. You know, they had all the same variety of physical attributes that we still have. And it helps you make those people very real to you. And did you prefer writing non-fiction or fiction? Um, I prefer writing fiction. I find it more exciting and it has all the joys of non-fiction. So you can do just as much research. You don't have to be quite so accurate with all your note taking because you're not going to be doing footnotes and so on. Um, but it allows you to give people voices. So a lot of um, part of the reason I wanted to write this book was I felt the two main characters had been misrepresented by history very badly and their voices had been not heard and actually taken away in their lifetimes. They weren't allowed to speak and, and put their cases. So for me, it was very important they had a voice and you can only really do that in fiction. So you're talking about voices. What do you think the author's responsibility is for inserting enough like diversity in their like fiction books? Um, I think... Well, I think it's important to reflect the world as it was uh, as much as you can. But of course, you are coming at that from a modern sensibility. So um, I think sometimes actually you wouldn't reflect some of the diversity. I mean, I could have had, say, in this book, um, a black slave in it, possibly. I could probably made an argument for that. But I actually didn't want that to be represented in my book. I didn't feel it was very relevant. I thought it was tokenistic and, and possibly very negative. So I made that choice not to have that. Um, I think one does need to be very well informed about everything um, from one's contemporary point of view and um, whatever whatever period you're writing about and, and to work very sensitively around that. I don't know whether authors necessarily have a responsibility to be diverse if, if they if that means you have to do something very false very sort of unreal for what you're actually writing about but i mean some people might say my book is a bit too feminist for the period you know i do get i have chosen women who had agency who took actions on their own behalf that's not necessarily very representative of the whole female population at the time but then i didn't feel i had to do that as a writer and i wanted to show that women were not only passive, obedient and chaste and silent as they were expected to be, they actually did do things for themselves. Um, and then talking a bit about writer's block, um, I'm sure you've come across it. Um, do you have any surefire ways or just things you do to overcome it? Yes, well, I've heard of writer's block. I've never suffered from it myself. And I think having three children, very little time to write, helps you not have writer's block because <laughs> what I have mainly is writer's panic. How on earth am I going to get everything done in the time I've got available? But there, definitely there are times when one loses confidence, I think, in one's writing and one's own ability. And then I think it's really good to have some tried and tested techniques where you just stop thinking about the quality of what you're doing or how it's going to be received by other people. 
So you take that critic, the sort of editor voice, just take it out of your head and put it in another room. It can even help actually to go to another room or when the world opens up again, go to a cafe or something. Go and write in a different place. If you're really stuck on what you're doing, write something different. Write a poem. Set yourself a task of writing a poem or, or writing something very different from what you're actually trying to do because that often gets the juices flowing again. Read something you really like. I've, whenever I got a bit stuck with my book, I would read a page or two from a writer I really like and who inspires me, and that would get me going again. Or the other thing you can do is set yourself word counts. So if you're really struggling with an essay or a big piece of writing, you can say, right, I'm going to write a thousand words and I'm not going to stop until I've done it. And so then what you're thinking about is how many words you're getting out, not how good they are. And when you stop worrying about how good your words are, they tend to come out much more easily and will often be much better than when you're worrying too much about it. That's my experience. And you were speaking about kind of the writer's panic. Was that like your hardest part of the process of writing? So right from the beginning to the final publishing process, what were some of like the pitfalls that you had to face? Well, I've been very lucky with this book that I haven't had to face too many pitfalls. I've had a really wonderful publisher in Bloomsbury. They couldn't have been nicer, more enthusiastic, more brilliant. Um, so that was not a difficult process. I suppose the hardest thing are those moments when you lose confidence and you think, really, I should be at home with my kids, cooking them healthy food and helping them with their homework and all that sort of thing rather than squirreling myself away in a library. So I think that's the hardest thing, believing in yourself as a writer and the value of what you're producing. Um, and what are your tips for getting an agent and getting your book published? I think we have many aspiring young writers in our school, so. That's great, you've got aspiring writers. That's so cheering to hear. Um, so what would be my tips? Um, well, the way I first got my agent was to go into a bookshop when you're allowed, but of course you can do this online as well, and find books that are in the same sort of genre of what, as what you're writing and find the one you like the best and work and find out who published it. And then through the publisher, you can find out who the agent was for that book. And then you can write to that agent and explain you've read this other book, you felt it was very similar to what, not similar, but in the same genre, and would, she, would that person be interested in reading it and so on. So if you can do a bit of homework about who to send it to, you'll have far more success than if you just send out blindly to people without really knowing why you're sending it to them. So that, and also, you probably shouldn't bother anymore sending scripts straight to publishers, because I don't think any of them have got time to read it. So you do, you do need an agent. And um, do you have any more general tips for people who want to get into writing? So um, any like little, little workshops they could do or exercises? Do you mean how people will get into writing or how they might improve their writing? Bit of both. Well, I think if you're not into writing already, maybe I wouldn't bother because it's jolly hard. So <laughs> most people... Who, who are successful writers can't really imagine doing anything else. They're quite driven. 
Um, because it's not the easiest job in the world. You do have to spend a lot of time on your own. You have to be very self-motivated. You have to be able to be quite critical about your own work. Um, so it, there are easier jobs and better paid ones too. So for all those reasons, I don't think um, motivation to be a writer is something you can really learn. You just have to have it. But um, how to improve your work. Yes, there are loads of things online about um, how to be a better writer. I suppose the thing that helped me most was just 10 minutes I had once on an Arvon course. Arvon's a good thing to know. I don't know if there's a, an age, a younger, what the age thing limit is, but it's an organization that's just to help writers and they run residential courses. And I think maybe some non-residential courses, but they're very good and professional writers take the courses. And I went on a couple of those and I had 10 minutes with one of the writers who literally just went through a paragraph of mine and showed me all the ways I was using too many adjectives. And it was, it was absolutely, you know, mind blowing. I thought, yes, I use too many adjectives. Why do I do that? And once you start down that road and you start to analyse your writing, then you are on a road to improving it. But probably the best tip I could give anyone is to read. Read, 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 read. But read really good stuff. So I always have a classic on the go. So Virginia Woolf or Tolstoy or Henry James or Shakespeare. or Read people who are really good. And the reason the classics have stood the test of time is because they are very, very good. And by reading a lot, you really, really hone your own skills as a writer because you start to recognise what is guff and waffle and, and you're just sort of marking time and what is really direct and beautifully put and inspiring or evocative. So reading, I would say, is more important even than writing if you want to be a good writer. Um, and in terms of the classics, are there any books that you think um, are maybe underappreciated and should be classics when they're maybe not considered to be? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me what classics to read. Um, so books that I think should be classics. Um, well, I think most of the books I think should be classics, I think will become classics later on. I think uh, lots by Rose Tremaine. Everyone tell probably already is a bit of a classic. Andrew Miller, these people I've already mentioned, Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, I mean, their books are going to stand the test of time, along with a lot of other writers. But I think some of the classics that we're off, we're a bit afraid to read, but I think are really worth it. Things like War and Peace, I mean, often that's hailed as an enormously long, impossible thing to read. But in fact, when you start it, it's a real page turner. So anything by Tolstoy, anything by Chekhov, particularly his short stories. Um, I think the Russians are a wonderful, wonderful way of learning to write well. Um, but really, you can't go wrong. You know, Flaubert, you just go to the Penguin Classics and, and uh, pick a few names. And after a while, you'll sort of have in your head the, ca the great canon of, of writers. And a lot of them are male, but not all of them. So Virginia Woolf, again, is an absolutely wonderful writer who I, I read a lot. So, yeah, I would say just go on a, a wonderful adventure into, into the brilliant writing of the past um, to really hone your skills as a writer. And what do you like to do when you're not writing? I'm never not writing. <laughs> if I'm not writing, I'm cooking um, or tidying the house.
or walking the dog. Though I do that. I love walking, um, particularly with the dogs because they're fluffy and very funny and um, they're a really good time waster. Um, I love going to art exhibitions, which of course haven't been able to do much recently, but I do look at art a lot because I find that very inspiring. Um, and reading, I suppose, rather predictably. I do a lot of reading. And occasionally I'll watch the odd movie. Um, okay, well, I think that's about all we have time for. Do you have any lasting messages that you'd like to pass on? Um, I think probably the most important thing is to enjoy it. If you, if you want to write, um, just try and have as much fun with it as you can. Thank you so much for coming on. And of course, we'll link all the descriptions to your books in the description of our show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. Okay, so that's a wrap on that. Here's a shout out, a little bit of a shameless plug as Anne has put it on our script. Ruby and I are hosting a non-radio LGBTQ plus historical discussion. There are going to be two on these, one which is going to be on the Monday 8th for year 10 and above, and another one which will be on the Wednesday 10th of March for year 7 to 9. So please pop along that. Be right there for in-person school. And tune in next week for a politics special where Freya and Ruby are going to be interviewing Dr Gammons. He is the UKIP mayoral candidate for this year. So definitely send in your questions for that. And as always, follow us on Instagram, drop us an email or DM. And let us know your achievements, big or small, and we'll shout them out. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.